Merry Christmas. Before I forget, there's one little announcement. Since there's no school this week, they've told us we can leave things set up. So, <laughs> a little Christmas gift, particularly to the men who work so hard in uh, arranging everything. So when you're done, you'll have this impulse to immediately grab your chair, fold it. I know you will. Uh, but just relax, talk a little longer. Okay. Well, in the chronology of the birth of Christ today, December 25th, if this was, in fact, the day he was born, it's the day we celebrate it, it's the day the church has celebrated it for years. And if we understand that the Jews saw a day as an evening and the following morning until the next evening. Today would be the day after the evening when the shepherds were out on the sides of the hills keeping watch over their flocks. And so at some point after that angelic revelation, that evening or this day, Jesus Christ would have been, would have been born. And sometime after that angelic revelation, the shepherds would have gone to Bethlehem to see what marvel the angels had announced to them. And they would have found him there. And they would have seen the reason for good tidings of great joy. A particular Savior being born to them. Now, if you were here at the... Christmas Eve service last night, you would have heard Pastor Tim talk about the shepherd's reaction. And he didn't realize that he was preaching my sermon. But I'm going to take a little different tact. I am going to talk about some of the same things. And I'm going to assume that it's God's providence that we hear these things again if you were here last night. What did the shepherds hear and what did they need a Savior for? What did they need to be rescued from? The shepherds knew that there were rescuers from time to time sent by God to Israel. If you read the book of Judges, you'll see that over and over again. They were familiar with that. The shepherds knew that they lived under the oppression of a government, a Roman government. And as Jews, they lived uh, under that weight and perhaps they didn't feel it as much as the other Jews in the cities. Perhaps being in the country, they were free from some of the, the difficulties of the, uh, of the government. If you, if you live in Owen County, like some people do, you can build whatever you want and not even worry about getting a permit. If you live in Monroe County, things are very different. And it's because of the presence of the government right there and the immediacy of, of bureaucracy. The shepherds knew about this, but did they feel a need personally to be rescued? They saw what the angels were saying. They saw that the angels were talking about something global. 
They said there, there would be tidings of great joy that would be to all people. So the shepherds understood that there was something global involved in it, but all people did, after all, include them. And as Tim spoke last night, they understood that they would one day stand before God and that there was a certain judgment coming. And so they saw the Savior as one who would rescue them certainly from that judgment. I want to talk today more about the antagonist that caused us to be in fear as we face that judgment and how Jesus, this Savior, has saved us from those antagonists, particularly from Satan and from our own sin. As I said, the shepherds did understand how that impacted them personally. If they hadn't understood it, could you, could you imagine them being on the side of the hill, talking to one another after the angels had made the announcement? <clears throat> this announcement makes perfect sense. Finally, something has been done about that awful judgment issue. Right? This solves the whole devil problem. This announcement's great. You know, according to the polls, sin has been way up this year. And this could really address that sin problem. This good tidings of great joy. This Savior issue. Well, of course, they didn't say anything like that. And it's likely that they understood really few of the implications of what the angels were saying to them. But they did understand a Savior. They did understand the Messiah. They did understand that it was something global. And they did understand that it was personal to them as well. And they took action immediately. They personalized it. They went to Bethlehem straight away. They went and they found the child and they saw him. And as they left, they told everyone that they had seen, everyone that they saw, what had been told them concerning the child. And as they went back to their fields, they went home glorifying and praising God. It was personal to them. They were aware of their personal need. If we look in the Bible, we see that there is marked out for us a very specific global and personal problem. And I'm again going to talk about two of the antagonists this morning. One, that we have an enemy without, and that is Satan. An enemy without. First Peter 5, verses 7 to 9 says, Be sober of spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When Paul was talking about his calling, and he was recounting his calling by Jesus. He said that he was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. There is a real enemy outside. But not only that, we have an enemy inside as well. James 1 verse 14 says, But... Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Romans 3, verses 22 and 23. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. We miss it. God's glory, us. Well, we're, we fall short of the glory of God. You know, we hear these verses, all of them, and we all, if we've been raised in church and we're familiar with them, some of us perhaps have memorized them. We say the words often. We think about them occasionally. Sometimes we talk to people in conversations about them. Sometimes when we're witnessing or discipling, perhaps we talk about them. But how do we understand them in our hearts? We understand them globally, but do we understand them personally? Have we personalized God's Word? Not personalizing His Word is something we're in danger of all the time, not just at Christmas as the shepherds might have been in danger of doing so. I was thinking about the people in New Orleans and trying to think of an example of how we would understand not personalizing great danger if we were in it. And so I came up with this illustration. If you were sitting with your wife on the shingles on top of your house in flooded New Orleans, and if you were watching others on faraway rooftops, and if you were seeing dead animals and worse float by in front of you, and if you'd been there for 36 hours sitting there, and suddenly a rescue boat appears, there it is, they're coming toward you. Is it that opportunity, is it at, at that opportunity uh, you turn to your wife and say, Aren't you glad the government finally did something about this problem of stranded individuals? Do you think of it globally then? No. What you do is, you and your wife stand up on the roof. Here we are! Save us! Rescue us! You would scream. It would be very personal to you. Very, very personal. You would be fully aware of your peril and fully aware of your situation. Now, we wouldn't miss this if we were on the rooftop in New Orleans during the flood. The problem is that quite often when we're in Bloomington, reading our Bibles, we miss it clearly. There is a real personal Satan. There is real and personal temptation. There are real and personal lusts and evil desires that wage war within us to take us away from God. There is real and personal sin. And how should we respond when we hear that there is good tidings of great joy? 
Isn't that nice that God has made provision for the condition of the world? Is that how we should respond? Here I am! Save me! Rescue me! This is the message that we understand at Christmas, but not just Christmas. This is the message we understand every single day of our lives after we've come to Christ, after we've come to realize that we have a Savior who delivers us from our sin. We have a Savior from the outside problem. Isaiah 49, verses 24 and 25 read, Can the prey be taken from the mighty man, or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your sons. Ephesians 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Think about those words. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. God, Almighty God, His strength to stand against your enemy outside. His strength to deal with Satan. Second Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, the inside problem. He goes on and he says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to this. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. He who lacks these qualities has not personalized his need nor the provision God has made for him. At Christmas we sing many, many carols and favorite hymns. Think about some of the words. I'm going to read just a few to you. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Hark the herald angels sing. 
good Christian men, rejoice. Come and behold Him, born the King of Angels. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King. And we sing a hymn that, I, that we sang actually this morning. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Did I say that right? If we have that hymn, could you put it up on the slide back there, Abram? This is a hymn, a carol that is likely 500 years old. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Is that right? There was a phrase from the 1400s that they would use, and the phrase was, Rest you, Mary. And we think of this song like I just pronounced it to you. God rest you, merry gentlemen, or God rest you, happy folks. Right? But it doesn't really fit with the following lines. And that's because we read it wrong. We need to read it as the comma tells us to read it, but with some old world understanding as well. It's not, God rest you, happy gentlemen. The actual meaning of this first phrase is something along the lines of, God keep you mighty, or God cause you to be rest assured. It's dealing with their lack of courage or dealing with their fear. And so when it says, God rest you merry, gentlemen, it's saying something very different than we often think of it or that our society often thinks of it as we, as we sing it. And this dramatically changes the first line and actually allows the first line to match the rest of the th- song theologically. Interesting, though, since I'm talking this morning about personalizing our need and God's provision, if you move the comma, it takes the personalization away from it because it takes the complete need out of the first line. It doesn't show that there's fear or doesn't show that there's concern or an understanding of what they need. Now this him, as I said, this song, is, this carol, is very old. And it's actually mentioned in Charles Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol. And Dickens actually wrote the book along the lines of caroling because carols, are, carols were very popular folk songs of his day. Uh, he, he actually called the titles in between the, uh, cha- or the titles of each chapter staves in in, or verses instead of chapters. And of course, the primary character in the book is Ebenezer Scrooge. And there's a point where Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge rejects a man who comes to carol at his door. 
And I have to give you just a tiny bit of background about this. There was, in the Catholic Church, was and is a man that they saw as one of their patron saints, the patron saint of metalworking, and his name was Saint Dunstan. And so he was the patron saint of guys who made metal craft, particularly precious metals. And there's a story about Saint Dunstan that the devil comes to him at his workshop and tries to tempt him, and he's dressed like a woman. And Saint Dunstan recognizes who it is, and he pulls a pair of red-hot tongs out of his fire, and he grabs the devil by the nose, and he holds him until the devil shrieks with pain and then runs away. Now, that's not really important, only to understand what Dickens writes. So, listen to this small quote from Dickens about Ebenezer Scrooge rejecting the caroler. It starts off talking about the night. Foggier yet and colder, piercing, searching, biting cold. If the good St. Dunstan had but nipped the evil spirit's nose with a touch of such weather as that, instead of using his familiar weapons, then indeed he would have roared to lusty purpose. The owner of one scant young nose gnawed and mumbled or chewed by the hungry cold as bones are gnawed by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas carol. But at the first sound of, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, Scrooge seized the ruler and with such energy of action that the singer fled in terror, leaving the keyhole to the fog and even more congenial frost. It's interesting the carol that Dickens chose here, that Scrooge rejects. God rest you merry, gentlemen. Because by rejecting this particular carol, he illustratively rejects a very personalized expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly stated and offered to him. He would have no tidings of comfort or joy in his home. So as we think about these words, I'm going to read this to you, but I want you to think about it differently now. I'm going to remind you of what God rest you merry means, and I'm going to read through the entire, the entire song, but I'm going to include some, some stanzas that are not on our singing up here, so Abram, don't bother in following. Remember, God rest you merry means something along the lines of God fortify you or God rest you assured, or God make you mighty, or God give you courage. God rest you merry, gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. For Jesus Christ our Savior was born upon this day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. In Bethlehem, in Jewry, that is among the people of the Jews, this blessed babe was born and laid within a manger upon this blessed morn, the which his mother 
Mary nothing did take to scorn. From God our Heavenly Father a blessed angel came, and unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same, how that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. Fear not then, said the angel, let nothing you affright. This day is born a Savior of virtue, power, and might, so frequently to vanquish all the friends of Satan quite. The shepherds at these tidings rejoiced much in mind and left their flocks a-feeding in tempest, storm, and wind and went to Bethlehem straightway this blessed babe to find. But when to Bethlehem they came, whereat this infant lay, they found him in a manger where oxen feed on hay. His mother Mary kneeling unto the Lord did pray. Now to the Lord sing praises, all you within this place, and with true love and brotherhood each other now embrace the holy tide of Christmas, all others doth efface. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, O tidings of comfort and joy. There was and is a global need, but we are part of that global. And there is a personal need for you and I, a personal need to be delivered from a real Satan who opposes us, a personal need to be delivered from sin that comes and wars, wages war even within our hearts. A personal need, finally, to be free from the certain judgment we would face were we not set free from Jesus, by Jesus Christ's work. There is a personal need, and there is provision. There is reason for us to have comfort and joy because there are good tidings. God has made provision. Rest assured. Be confident. God make you mighty. Let's pray.